So this morning, uh, we're going to be continuing uh, this sort of long summer series uh, on these letters of the New Testament. And so we broke it down uh, in the month of June, the month of July, and now the month of August as to the authors of these letters as we sort of journey through them in our New Testament. And so we began with the letters of John, and then last month, in the month of July, we had the letters of Peter, and now we are going to be looking at the letters of Paul. And we're really excited about this, and maybe the most excited about the letters of Paul, because they're so, and we're going to try to focus on one letter per week over the course of there's these five weeks that are in the month of August. And we're, we're really excited about these because each one of these has so much depth, so much to draw from, and so much that we can look to as a way of guiding our life, our spiritual lives, off of what this man named Paul had to say. And so it's very important for us to look as we begin to look. We, we want to look at one of these letters that for this author was sort of the heartbeat of what he wanted people to understand about who God was, how their relationship with God could be lived out, and uh, how we can navigate sort of a crazy world with all sorts of different influences happening in our life. I want to give a brief background on who Paul was uh, so that we can have a little bit more of an idea of, of why he begins to write and why he begins to be sort of a dominant voice throughout your New Testament. If you're newer to faith or you're newer to reading the Bible, you could begin to open the Bible in the New Testament and be like, hey, why is this guy Paul writing so much of the New Testament? Uh, it, it, and, and it becomes clear as you begin to read some of his things, as you see his life and you see his journey, that he became this voice to the first century church as it began and as it sort of got its legs under it and moved forward. It wasn't just about correcting things that were wrong. It was a lot about setting the course for where it was going to go. And we talked about that a little bit over when we talked about the letters of John, when we talked about letters of Peter, we talked about how there were all sorts of things that were trying to take out Christianity through false doctrines or through different people or through trials or adversities or whatever it might be. And we talked about how these letters helped bring clarity to people's lives. And Paul the Apostle, before he started writing all of these things to Christians, was somebody who didn't like the idea of people following Christ. Paul whose name was actually Saul, was part of the religious elite of this day, what they, would, what they, what they called a Pharisee, which means that they would have been the, 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 the best of the best, the people who could keep the religious law. We call it the Mosaic Law, or another word for it would be Torah. There would there'd be people who would follow this law to the, the letter, every sentence of it, and they would then try to help others follow this Jewish law. So Paul was one of those people. And Paul, like maybe many of us, if you've read through the Old Testament, you quickly realize that the Jewish people over the course of their history have, had, have been full of false gods, where they should have been worshiping the God of Abraham. They begin to worship these other gods, whether it be idols or, or, or any other thing. You begin to see that there's this cycle in the Old Testament of the Jewish people who want to, who try to worship God, but they end up always worshiping idols. They end up falling into the trap of worshiping false gods. 
Paul, no doubt, as somebody who would have read all of those things, saw Jesus, saw what he did in the earth, and saw Christianity as a false god for the Jewish people. He would have seen it that way, and as we're going to discover through this first book that we're going to look at, Paul is a very passionate and enthusiastic follower of God. So he looks at all of these things and he says, he, he, he probably said, I, I, I need to do something about this. I need to do whatever I can to stop Christianity from happening. I want to help rid the world of this false idea of God and get rid of the idea that Jesus would be the Messiah. So instead of just going up and trying to say things or trying to, you know, start a rally to get behind himself, he hunted these Christians down and had them imprisoned, had them beaten, had them tortured because of their faith. He was very, he was very intense in his purpose to end Christianity. And until one day when he is on his way to do all of the to do more of these things he's encountered by Jesus as he's journeying on a road to Damascus and if you've read the story in the book of acts you'll see that Jesus shows himself to Paul talks to him and he is in that moment converted from be, from thinking that Christianity and Jesus is a false god into understanding that he is the true and the real god so that's Paul's conversion and transformation beginning, right? Over the course of years, he begins to learn and grow, and he meets Christians, he meets people, and he's, because he was this huge figurehead, you know, from this other, from this other world, trying to remove people from this world, people were very skeptical of him, so it took a long time to have him be a part of the, of, of the world of Christianity in the first century. So, as he begins that journey, and as he begins to, to take root and preach in all of these other places, he begins to see that there are some things that are happening that he wants to be able to address and help to resolve. And so, in that time, um, there was two, essentially two groups of people who were following Jesus and who were trying to be a part of this movement that we call now Christianity in the first century. There were people who, like Paul, were Jewish people who followed the path of both Judaism, but also recognized that Jesus was the Messiah. Right? Are we following so far? These people who were, who, who were Jews recognized, like Paul, Jesus is the Messiah. I want Jesus. Great. Nobody has any issues with that. Then there were people like, like you and I who are not Jews, who were not following Torah, who were not following Mosaic law, who were saying, we want Jesus too. And everybody's like, great. But then there was a whole group of people from the people who were practicing Jews who looked at Gentiles and said, in order for you to be Christians, you have to follow all of these Jewish practices. And if you do not follow these Jewish practices, you cannot be a Christian. And so this uprising of what was happening between Jews and Gentiles began to really sort of bubble up to the surface as a big issue in the first century church. So Paul, Peter, James, a lot of the big figureheads for Christianity in the first century 
came together in the book of Acts. You can read about it in the book of Acts, chapter number 15. And they began to discuss this issue and say, do you need, like, what about these, what's, what's the deal with these Gentiles? What, like, the question arose, should you have to convert to Christianity? Con- or, sorry, converting, convert to Judaism, which means that they were wanting to require, you know, people to uh, eat kosher food. They wanted uh, men, even as adults, to be circumcised. That was part of their religious tradition. And so they're, they're, they're asking all of these things of them, and the church leaders came together and said, no, you don't need to. Gentiles, will, 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 they, they, can be, they can be Christians, but they do not have to abide by this. Paul is one of the apostles, and probably at that point feels like one of the only apostles that feels called to preach to these people, the Gentiles. And in the Gentile world, Christianity is booming. But there becomes all this confusion about whether or not you should be living in Jewish law or, and, or whether or not you can live and, and practice your life as normal, as a Gentile, as long as you follow after God and accept him as Savior. Are we all on the same page with where we're at with before we get to this letter? Yes? So Paul is very passionate, and we're going to read a part of this story and a part of this letter that becomes just glowingly passionate, and you see, whoa, like you're, you're, you're using things and you're using language to illustrate how upset you are that there's all this confusion and that there's all of this division. Paul becomes, as you're going to begin to see throughout his, all of his writings, he's a very passionate person, and the thing that he's most passionate about is what God has saved him from. He, he's going to talk in most of these letters that we're going to read in some form or another about that he once was hunting Christians and now he's living this life of following Jesus. And this is important because it becomes the heartbeat of his message and in essence it is the beauty and the attractional nature of the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus. But he's very passionate when he's speaking to them, and he becomes very intense in his focus in trying to help people understand that the gospel and that Jesus exists for both Jews and Gentiles. I want you to think in your life, do you have anybody that is like really passionate about one thing? You know, and if, if there's one thing in your life, and one thing in their life, or maybe it's somebody in your family, or somebody that you that you work with, um, you know, there's 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 so many different things, and there's so many different hobbies that people are so passionate about. And sometimes you look at it and you're like, "Wow, you spend a lot of time with that. That's great." Uh, my wife has a passion and a hobby. I don't know if it's a hobby so much as it just is a, a, a very big passion of hers. Um, but it isn't necessarily a passion of mine, and 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 living. And growing with four children, there are some things that going through that process, I've realized I really don't like dealing with. I'll deal with like a lot of the, the gross stuff that people initially are turned off with by, by child raising. I'll, I'll deal with a lot of the other stuff, even some of the emotional things, all of the things that, are diff- that can be difficult. One thing that is really challenging for me, and if you're with me, you'll know what I'm talking about, is car seats. Nobody else? Like, you're just giggling like, you, like car seats are somehow automatic. They're not automatic at all. Everything else in life is automatic. Like, you just press a button for something, but there's no amount of money you can pay for an automatic car seat. You still have to load this 300-pound monstrosity from one vehicle to the other. 
But my wife loves car seats. She's researched car seats. She loves car seat safety. She likes it when our children are properly buckled in car seats. She likes it that our children don't unbuckle. And if our children do unbuckle their car seats at any moment, we are pulling over. And so consequently, we pull over a lot. <laughs> what are these people doing on the side of the road? I don't know, probably buckling up a car seat. If, if, if it's just me driving and I'm not noticing, it's like I'll just be driving along and all of a sudden everything will be quiet. I'm like, wow, this is such a nice trip. I look in my rearview mirror and my children are freely roaming around the cabin. <laughs> hey guys, the seatbelt light is on. I need you guys to have, to have your, your seatbelts on. But there's a, most of our children have been okay with being in car seats, but our littlest one, our three-year-old, he hates car seats. And if given the chance, like he would, he's just kind of one of those kids that always wants to live life on the edge. He always wants to be sitting in the big kid car seat, or he wants to be sitting in no car seat at all. Now, before we go any farther, I realize car seat safety is important. So don't come up to me later and be like, wow, you're a bad dad for not liking car seat safety. Car seat safety is important, but my three-year-old is always asking to ride like in the way back of my SUV, right? Where there's no seats at all. It's just, you know, flat like what we did in the 90s, you know, like as if that's a new idea, right? So he's always asking to ride back there. And like there was one day where he's like, Dad, can I ride in the way back? And I was like, no, you got to ride in your seat. We were half a block from the house and I had to stop, drop something off. And, and he got out of his car seat, went to the way back and I got back in the vehicle and I looked back and his head pops up, beep. And he's in the way back. He's like, Dad, can I ride in the way back? And I was like, oh, no, you really shouldn't. He goes, but I won't tell Mom. (laughs) My wife's passionate about car seats. Paul is passionate about people understanding the gospel in a very simple way. And he's passionate about people, the group of people called the Gentiles, understanding faith in a way that made sense for them. So much of what happened in the first century church was geared toward people who were coming out of Judaism or trying to follow God along, or trying to follow Jesus alongside Judaism. And Paul said there's this whole group of people that is unreached and tens of thousands of them are coming to a relationship with God and we need to be the ones that help cultivate what that looks like. And so that brings us to our book that we're going to focus on today and it's the book of Galatians. Galatians. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn there. We're going to read a few little passages to help us understand this in a little bit of a deeper way. But the book of Galatians is written to a group of churches who were based around the city of Galatia. And so this could have been hundreds maybe even thousands, depending on when this all happened. We don't know exactly, but lots of different people. And what was happening before Paul wrote this is Paul wrote this to them after all of the, there was an agreement from all of the church leaders that you do not have to convert to Judaism in order to be a Christian. But yet this, this message became like, like, Found its, way, found its way back into the Galatian churches, and Paul is writing, by and large, to help solve this issue once and for all. And so before you get down the road of thinking, well, I don't understand, this isn't necessarily a discussion that's happening in our world today, there's a lot of things that we can draw from this that are going to be as if he is going to be writing this to us today, I promise. So 
Um, as we look to the book of Galatians, I want you to turn to, the, to chapter 3. We're going to start reading in verse number 1. Paul's primary focus is on the belief that in order to be a Christian, like this is what he's focused on, that you have to also practice Mosaic or Jewish law. But Paul is going to essentially try to clear this up as best he can. He's going to, and we're going to see a big part of it here in chapter 3. It says, O foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it wasn't in vain, was it? I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obeyed the law? Of course not. It is because you believe the message you heard about Christ. In the same way, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. When Paul is saying the law here, he's not talking about getting a speeding ticket. You weren't obeying the law. He's talking again, as we've already shared, about the law of Moses, Torah, following all of those practices, following all of those things. And if you're unfamiliar with what that would look like, it's an exhausting amount of rules and rituals and regulations that you would have had to have followed and would have had to immerse your entire life in in order to follow all of them. But Paul here is looking at them and saying, you are trying to perfect in yourselves the work of Christ by what you could do in order to try to please God with religious behaviors. And he said, how foolish could you be? A different translation and maybe arguably a more accurate one would him, being, him, him saying, how stupid can you be? That's what he's saying. Like, I'm sure maybe we've had that thought go in our heads. You know, where we're like, oh, I, I kind of wish I would have just said, how, how stupid could you be? But he's saying, hey, stupid Galatians, how have you been so tricked by trying to understand that this is not where God wants you to be at all? He's, he, he, he's letting this passion that he has for the Gentiles show through his writing by saying, how could you possibly be so misled by thinking that you could have earned what Jesus did for you on the cross by your perfect behaviors through Jewish law. This is huge for us because it isn't just about trying to perfect Jewish law, bringing Jesus into it, and finding salvation through that. For us, it often looks very different. And if maybe you're like me, and, 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 or, or maybe not, but when we come into a church there's, or, or, or a relationship with God or, or whatever it might be, we often as people want, just like what Paul is trying to write to, we want something to do. We want a list of things that we can somehow accomplish. Why? Because it feels good right? It feels good to look at a, maybe like a project around the house or something that's going on and being like, I'm going to finish this project. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do everything. All the details are going to be done and I can sit back and I can look at it and I can say, oh, it's done. 
It feels so good. But Paul is saying, we're doing the same thing with our Christianity. We're trying to say, well, I read my Bible, I prayed, I sang a worship song in the car on my way to work, and, oh, wow, I'm a pretty good Christian. Nice. I did it. Paul's like, you got it all wrong. You're trying to take what you could do in your own efforts to get to God. You're trying to replace those things with what Jesus did for you on the cross. And it's a very dangerous place for these people in Galatia to be, but it's also a very dangerous place for us to be. Because to Paul, he saw this issue very simply. Stop trying to perfect with your flesh what God began in the Spirit. And he refers over and over to the gospel of the crucified Christ. Do you want to know why he always refers to the one that Jesus died on the cross? Because we didn't. We weren't the ones who earned salvation. Even in all of our best efforts, even in all of our self-sacrifice, we could never amount to what Jesus did on the cross. So Paul is constantly trying to point the finger back to Jesus, back to the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf, so that we could understand there is no human effort that could ever get to God, only God's effort to try to get to man. That's the message of, 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 the, of this letter to the Galatians. This means that when he was the one that Jesus did the work on the cross and our belief in him is what causes us to walk in fellowship with him. Paul said this in the book of Galatians. He said that we are declared righteous. Turn to somebody and say righteous. We are declared righteous by God through the sacrificial death of Jesus. Not by our own doing, but we're declared righteous through Jesus. This is what righteous means. It means that we are in right relationship with God. There wouldn't be any, it just means that there wouldn't be anything holding us back. You've been in relationships, right, where it's like, I know I irritated this person and they're giving me the silent treatment right now. It's like, there's no silent treatment with God, right? There's just, we are, if we are righteous, we are in right relationship with God. We've been forgiven and given a place in God's family. And it results in transformation by grace. Paul said that you aren't declared righteous by following the law, but that, through, that you are declared righteous through faith in Jesus. And so maybe you're like me. I, so I grew up in a church, and throughout my whole life, I always equated if I did good things, God loved me, and if I messed up, God didn't love me. And so I did my best to always, and, and, and it wasn't necessarily something somebody had told me that that's what I had to believe. It's just part of our human nature to assume that if I do more good things than bad, then God loves me more the more good that I do. And so I just always tried to tip the scales in my favor. I always tried to do good things. I tried hard to, you know, obey my parents. And, and, and all of the things that we do try to do, those are good things. But as a child, I remember th and looking back at like the decisions that I made and some of the things that I did in my life, I did them not because 
I did them out of the desires of my heart being transformed. I did those things because somewhere deep down inside, I thought God would love me more or somehow I could be more righteous if I just checked all of the right boxes in my life. But I'm here to tell you today that you aren't made more righteous by doing good things. You are either righteous or you are not righteous. And trying to convince yourself otherwise would be to be living a lie, right? If I live in the city of Mauston, I, 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 I am a citizen of Mauston. If you do not and try to tell me that you are a citizen of Mauston, I will say, no, you are not. You live outside of the city limits. But if you live in the city, I'm not a, I'm not a better citizen of Mauston, right? There's no better or worse. There's just you are a citizen. You aren't in bad standing or good standing. You're just a citizen. So as citizens of God's kingdom, as, right, as people who have been declared righteous by God, we get the opportunity to walk those things out and be people who honor God through our desires being transformed. Being righteous means that the things that we, we, we maybe once desired, the things that were evil, we have put those things away. We have put those things in the past. And being Declared righteous, allowing our lives to be transformed means that we can no longer be the same. And it's not like some kind of a rule that people are waiting for us in all every behavior we've ever done to change. We might look the same. We might maybe even feel the same. We might think the same way. But as we grow in a relationship with God, as we grow in fellowship with God, we discover that our desires for things can be transformed, that we're different. We're, we're made different through God. I remember like when we like had our first child, like going from just being a married couple to being, you know, I'm like, oh wow, we're, we're a family now. Like everything has changed, even though in that nothing really had changed other than, you know, between us, we, we, we were different. We were made different. And our transformation is similar in that we might look and feel the same, but we get to be a part of God's family, not by working hard for it, but by God's grace through Jesus. In the same way that being born into a family or even being adopted into a family, you don't earn it through your good behaviors or, your good th or the things that you might do by saying, okay, God, I know that there, all right, somewhere exists in Scripture like this big to-do list, and if I just got the to-do list done, I could relax and, not, and, get, and get God off my back. Paul's writing to the Galatians in the sense of he's saying, you have people who are, who on the, over are in this camp saying, if, if I can just get all of these things done, if I can follow the Jewish law to the T and Jesus is still a part of it, then somehow it's going to be perfect. Paul is saying, you didn't experience miracles, you didn't experience transformation, you didn't experience any of those things when you were following the law itself. Jesus was the one that brought it. So all of the things that we could try to do for God are going to be meaningless when it comes to us trying to be made more righteous than we already are. We stand before God forgiven. But Paul's message throughout his writing is this. When we trust in Jesus, and I want you to get this, when we trust in Jesus, what's true of him becomes true of us. What's true of him becomes true of us of us. We begin to look more and more like Jesus. We begin to 
take on his characteristics, hopefully. We begin to take on some of the things that he would have done, his selflessness, his love, his hope, his forgiveness, all of the things that he was. We begin to take those on. What was true of Jesus becomes true of us. And so by association, we become part of what God is doing in the earth through Jesus. And so we, in a positive way, become righteous by association of Jesus once we believe and we confess before God. We can be guilty by association, right? Like we understand what that means, and I certainly do as a child. I was, you know, I was three or maybe four years old. I was very impressionable, and my older brother one day, I remember this clear as, clear as day, I remember my older brother, he said, he said, hey, Aaron, come here. I want to show you something. I was like, okay, cool. He said, hey, look what I found. And he went in the garage, and he found, it was like a, like a one-gallon ice cream bucket. He's like, I found, a, I, found, I found this ice cream bucket, and it's full of rusty nails and bolts. It's like, okay, cool. He's like, let's stand on the street and throw them at cars. And I was like, yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> so I stood there with my brother as vehicles passed on Grayside Avenue, and we threw nails and stuff at cars. I say we like, I'm three. Come on, give me a break, right? I'm just there, right? I'm not the one who's really doing it. You can imagine how it ended. You can imagine how that story ended. There is somebody coming to our front door talking to my dad about it, right? So Ed, <laughs> a very unhappy person with a very scratched car. So I was in that moment. I wasn't really part of it. I didn't make any of the decisions. I didn't do any of the work to be in trouble, but I was guilty by association, right? I was there. I was coerced. I was convinced. And in a way, that's what being a part of the human, that's what being a part of the human experience is all about, right? We're guilty by association of being a part of the world that is fallen, full of sin. We choose to take part, and even if we might not say, oh yeah, I'm out there being the worst hellraiser in the world, we're guilty by that association. But in the same way that we're guilty by the association of sin, we're also made righteous through the association of Jesus. And so once we've ascended and said, I believe in God, I believe that he saved me, I'm going to give my life to him, I want to walk this life out, I want to give him everything, then there isn't enough boxes we could check in the world of all of our good behaviors that would try to make us any more righteous than we were when he saved us through his death on the cross. And it's worth us knowing that because I can get caught up in it, and so many of us can get caught, oh, I'm just, I'm not doing good, I feel like I'm not, and we'll, and we'll talk about what it can really look like to live in just a moment, a daily life that's sought out, that, that's, that seeks God, and what it looks like, but before we get even there, it's worth us not getting all caught up in our own spiritual pride to say that somehow I'm more righteous than anyone else, let's get rid of it. Because we walk in association with the righteousness of God, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And I've said that 10 times this morning because I want us to get it. That it isn't about something that we could have manufactured on our own. It's only by what Jesus did. And this is what Paul says. Because Paul said in chapter 2, verse 19, he's talking about his own experience. And he says this, For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. 
I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ that lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. Paul's saying it would take so much effort to try to follow Mosaic law along with trying to live a relationship with God that I was forced to make a choice, that I chose to live my life through the power of the Holy Spirit versus trying to think that there's some grand scheme that I can somehow be better by checking the right boxes, doing all of the right traditions, doing all of the right things so that I could stand before God justified. No, Paul said, I've been justified. My, <clears throat> the experience of Jesus dying on the cross was my experience dying on the cross. As, as we are righteous through association of Jesus, it means that we place all of our past, all of our old... So Paul calls it, he, there's, there's, the, there's the idea of flesh and spirit. Flesh, meaning it's the part of our sinful nature, the part of us that always draws us away from God's plan. Our spirit speaks to the part that would always want to draw us into God's plan for our life. And he's going to talk in a second about how those two things are pulling against each other. There's one that wants to pull us away. And because we live in a fallen world, because we live in, in, in a place where our, the, the, the past things that brought, once brought us away from where God wanted us to be, those things are always screaming in our face. It's easy for us to want to take steps to say, I'm going to live out the life and I'm going to walk, out and, and walk in a way that would be fleshly or, and, and I'm going to let my sinful nature walk, out, walk itself out. But when we take the step to say, I'm going to live by the Spirit... I'm going, to follow, I'm going to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, we find a life that is full of fulfillment, a life that has peace, a life that has joy. So, we follow Jesus who's the one who did the work for us. Jesus' death on the cross was not for him, but it was for us. And so, being made righteous by association means that we have to walk out our lives in a way that allows our experience with God to form our future with Him. Because I think that it's in our, <clears throat> it's in our nature to want to have things that we can just be really prepared for, right? We, it, we just do it, right? We want to be prepared for every possible thing. Maybe we want to be prepared for negative things. Maybe we want to be prepared for positive things. We want to make sure that all of our bases are covered. So we want all of those things. We want things that can help us focus our attention on the right things. And some of those things are not bad. But there's this element that Paul is referring to that's much more nuanced, that helps us try to understand that there are passions that are pulling us and there are things that are involved that are be sometimes a little beyond our control that take us stepping toward God rather than taking a step toward our own selfish desires. I'll, I'll sort of illustrate it this way. This summer, I, I, it was the first time I had done this, but I, had, I coached my son in baseball and we did 
uh, we, we, we traveled all over, and we did all sorts of fun stuff, and it just ended this week, and so, like, it was a lot of work, and, and if you ever, you know, want, you know, personally, if you're, like, sitting around thinking, like, man, God, I really need a lesson in patience, um, just coach your kid in a sport, and be plenty of opportunities to learn about patience, um, long-suffering, lots of things. So, you're thinking about that, like, that's great, but I remember, like, my son is super into baseball, and he's, like, I'm very proud of him. He's the one who's, like, always wanting to learn more. He wants to, like, know more about the game. He's really driven to, like, want to be a better athlete and want to be a better baseball player, and so he's, we're constantly, like, talking about, like, things, and we're, maybe, you know, we're watching Brewer games, and we're kind of dissecting it and analyzing things and, and talking about, like, baseball situations when we're brushing our teeth at night or whatever it might be, and, and so, uh, but I, he, he had talked to me at one point, and he said, Dad, I just, I want to know all the rules of baseball. And I said, okay, we'll, we'll learn the rules of baseball. And so the more rules that we learn, and he, he begins to know more about the game. And then he said, but Dad, there's times where just like, I'm holding the ball, and I don't know what to do. And I remember like telling him, I'm like, hey, Jasper, there are things about the game of baseball that are too nuanced just for a rule to be able to tell you. That rule, the rules of baseball exist to keep people within the lines, but there's so much experience that you have to have that if in the middle of all the, all the kids are running around and there's people running around bases, you pick up the ball, what are you going to do with it? It takes playing, it takes experience, and it takes doing it tens, like hundreds, thousands of times before you get good at it. And our transformational experience with God takes time. It takes time to understand the nuances of how to journey through life. Maybe when we encounter things that are very difficult. Maybe we, have, maybe we experience tragedy. Maybe we, maybe we experience joy. Maybe we experience disappointment. Maybe we, ex- we, we could have all sorts of different experiences. And the transformational process that it takes for us to get to from where we once were to where God wants us to be is something that only God's grace can help us achieve. And so... How can we let what Paul is writing affect our daily lives? How can we let it affect our daily lives? Well, funny you should ask because Paul writes about it in chapter 5. And if you're looking at the entire New Testament, one of the, one of the great nuggets and one of the great things that you could take as a scripture and really make yours would be these next few verses. This is what he says. And he wraps up all of his passion. He wraps up all of his ambition. He wraps up all of it because he's talking about our sinful nature pulling against our God nature, our spirit. And before we go into this verse, I want you to kind of get your mind around this idea. There's maybe no better way that we can understand two desires within us pulling one way or the other, maybe then when it comes to eating food. And I love to eat food, right? But there are things like when we, when, when we approach eating when it's like healthy eating or like eating that we know like is really bad, right? Those things can pull at us, right? Because like when we're trying to eat healthy, all we think about is chocolate, right? It's just part of us. You can't escape it. 
Like people that just eat healthy all the time and, 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 and say that they never think of other food, like you're lying to yourself. Like you are thinking about it. And if you ever like eat like food you shouldn't and like you know it and it's sitting in your stomach like a bag of nickels and you're like, I just need some grass to eat or I need like, <laughs> if could I have some broccoli and counteract what I just did? Like you know that struggle, we all do. And it's a very similar struggle to what Paul is going to help us illustrate when it comes to making decisions that would honor God and being led by, he, he calls it in this verse, a craving, which means a craving would be drawn to where God wants us to go. Verse 16 of chapter 5 says, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. That idea of craving. That idea where there's this thing that's drawing you. You don't even know why you're being drawn into this. But you are, and you find yourself there. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other so that you are not free to carry out your own good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you're not under obligation of the law of Moses. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in your lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There is no law against these things. So those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Let us not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. Paul is saying there's not some magic list, there's not some magic religion that's all full of these specific types of rules that will get you to follow the desires of the Holy Spirit. There's only relationship and there's only experience through, transformation of, through the transformation of Jesus in our lives. Which means that it takes us to remember that what's true of Jesus can be true about us. We can live a life of purpose. We can live a life of hope. We can live a life of love and forgiveness. And that when we take the step, because we know what it's like to be drawn into where God wants us to be, just like that, just like a craving to want to be healthy, to want to, to, want to make choices that would honor God, like those, those decisions to want to honor God become to, they, they, they rise above any of the good things that we could try to look to and say, okay, I got to check these things off the list so I can finally relax. Paul is saying, let your life be so transformed by the Holy Spirit that the cravings you have to move your life in the direction of God become so strong that all of these other things are things that have been long in your past that you can look to in the rearview mirror and say, wow, those things have all been crucified with Christ. 
All of those things that I once did, all of those things that I thought once would fulfill me, I can see them in my rearview mirror as things that have been nailed with Jesus to the cross. All of these things and all of the messages, all of the letters that Paul is going to write is going to continue to point to that message, that the good news of Jesus is that we don't have to carry around those things anymore that brought us down. We don't have to live in such a way that would cause destructive behaviors to consume our life and addictions to lead the way as we journey and try to raise our families and and, and live a life that would honor God. But we can live a life that would be drawn to the craving of the Spirit we could see Jesus for who he is. Somebody who welcomes us in, who calls us, and who justifies us through his righteousness, not our own. And we are righteous by association of calling ourselves part of the family of God. Would you stand as we close this morning? It's my prayer that for each of us, that each one of us are in a different part of our transformative experience. And God gives us the grace to do it. It's not like we walked in church once, we said that we wanted to be a Christian, and all of the fruits of the Spirit are just hanging off our life and we've never done another bad thing in our lives. That's not how this works. It means that we're willing and we're open to the process. It means that we're willing to let God reach into those parts of our life and say, all right, God, I know you got to rip these things out. I know you got to take some of these things off that are getting in the way, that are, that are causing my relationship with you to suffer. I know that there's things that you want to draw me to and things that you want me to, that you want to take me away from. So this morning as we close in prayer, I want us to focus in and just ask God to do that for us. Would you close your eyes? Would you bow your head with me? And let's just ask that he gives us the grace to walk out this transformative experience. God, I thank you that for each and every one of us, God, your love and your purpose is unique. That your future for us is unique. And that God, as you call us forward, God, you give us the grace to walk it out. That yeah, there's, there's nuances to our faith, there's nuances to our life. But God, that we can look to our lives and see that the evidence of your handiwork in our life, the the fingerprint of God would be these fruits. So we desire to follow you so that these things can be evident in our life, so that we can then be a witness to people who are lost, people who desire so much to have peace in their life, to have joy in their life, that we can offer it because, not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done. So God, help us in that process. Help us to take that step journey closely with you in Jesus name and I want to ask if we're here this morning and and we would say that maybe you would say I want to I I came today because I want to make a commitment to Jesus Christ maybe you've never given him your life where you would say God I I want all in with you if that's you here today we want to pray with you we want this to be a day where you can look back to and, and rem- remember all of, all of the sins that God took away from you. If you, have not, if you have not prayed a prayer like that or you've not taken a step like that, I just want you to raise your hand right now. By raising your hand, you'll be saying, yeah, that's me. I want to I take a step. as we go 
Help each and every one of us through your mercy to grow closer in fellowship and in relationship with you so that when trials come our way, when situations arise, that you're there, that we can lean on you, not our own understanding, not our own experiences, but on what you've done for us, on your wisdom and on your love. We just thank you for this day. Ask for a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like prayer for anything, we'll have people up front who would love to pray for you.